Well, I hope you've been able to impress all your friends, your study of bibliology, theology, Christology, pneumatology, y'all with me? Anthropology, soteriology, and today ecclesiology. You know, if you've been around church gatherings for very long, you've probably heard it correctly said that the word church is not about a building. When you think about it, the most common uh, use of the word church typically relates to the building of the structure. We say, I'm going to church tomorrow. Or we say to someone, hey, you should come to my church for the Harvest Festival. Or maybe we say, uh, my church is that big one on the interstate. Yeah, the one with the green roof. It's my church. Nothing wrong with any of those phrases, but we know that a church is more than a building. So what, what makes a church a church? If a group of people gather together and talk about spiritual things, does that make them a church? Does it matter whether they gather in a church building or a coffee shop? What if they not only gather to read the Bible, but they also pray and sing when they gather? Does that make them a church? Does a church have to have an ordained, seminary-trained pastor who's called to ministry in order to qualify as a church? Well, let me tell you what the Scripture says. Most theologians in in studying Scripture would say there are three marks of a true church that you see in the New Testament churches. The first one is the most critical, and that is correct teaching of the Bible. Now, that speaks to to content, not not to form, but a true church is not going to have any teaching that contradicts God's Word, that contains false doctrine. If a church is teaching things that you do not see true in the word of God, then it's not a true church. A a true church is always going to present the true gospel message of salvation by faith alone. If a church says there's any other thing you need to do to be saved or to be made right with God, that's not a true church. Now, it goes without saying, but I'm going to say it. If a true church doesn't teach false doctrine, if a true, true church teaches the message of salvation by faith alone, then a true church must have a true preacher, not an entertainer, not a life coach, not an eloquent ear tickler. You remember that Paul told Timothy in 2 Timothy 4.3, it's time will come when people will not put up with sound doctrine. Instead, to suit their own desires, they will gather around them a great number of teachers to say what their itching ears want to hear. We're in that time. You can find lots and lots of churches, if not around your neighborhood, around the city, certainly those who claim to be churches and preachers, you can find them on television, on the internet, that are telling people what they want to hear according to their desires. They're not teaching, they're not preaching sound doctrine. The first mark of a true church is that the preaching is sound because it's based in the Word of God. Second mark of a true church is the correct administration of the ordinances of baptism and the Lord's Supper. We're going to look more in two weeks specifically into the ordinances of baptism and the Lord's Supper, but these two ordinances are vital to the church because they serve as a means of membership qualification and alignment. Here's what I mean by that. The ordinance of baptism, when someone is, comes to faith in Christ and they're baptized, the ordinance of baptism is what allows people to enter into a relationship and fellowship with the church. And let me say here, Church, capital C. You only have to be baptized one time. You don't get baptized every time you you move to another city, you join another local church. But at the moment of salvation, 
you become part of Big C, Big Church, Universal Church, through baptism. That puts you in relationship and fellowship with the church. And then the Lord's Supper. When you receive the Lord's Supper, it's indicative that you're in good standing with your church. You shouldn't receive the Lord's Supper if, if you're living a sinful life. You shouldn't receive the Lord's Supper if there are things in your life that God has tried to correct that you haven't uh, done anything about. Receiving the Lord's Supper is indicative that you're in good standing as a member of your local church. So these ordinances are vital in the church as far as becoming a member of the church and being in good relationship in alignment with the church. The third mark that you see in the, in the New Testament church is the correct practice of church discipline to correct sin or error. Now, you probably don't hear much about that. Uh, in many churches, church leadership is not willing, but church discipline is the willingness of leadership to deal with a member who's involved in verifiable, significant sin and who is unrepentant. Now, you may wonder, well, well, you've not seen that happen here. Does Geyer Springs practice church discipline? Yes, we do. And the message today is not on church discipline, not on our practice, but let me assure you that we are careful to call members into accountability for what we know and is public. Now, we don't police everybody's private lives. We don't know what a lot of folks are doing. You're, you may be thinking right now, well, I know someone in our church who needs church discipline. Y'all haven't done anything. We don't go around looking for stuff. But when significant sin becomes public and becomes evident, we as, a, as church pastors deal with that. Now, if you know, if you understand the process of church discipline, you know the final step, if someone's unrepentant, is you bring it before the church and you basically disfellowship with them. We've never had to do that in the years I've been here. Most of the encounters we've had, people are either repentant or they remove themselves from the fellowship of the church. But looking at Scripture, looking at the New Testament church, that's one of the three marks, that the leaders are willing to deal with those who are unrepentant in, in verifiable, significant sin. Now, what did the church look like in Scripture? What did it physically look like? Was it, a, was it a small group? Was it a large group? Did the church refer just to one group or to all the groups collectively? We call that the universal church. What did it look like in Scripture? Let me show you four pictures of the church in Scripture. First of all, you did have small house churches. Paul, in Romans 16, verses 3 and 5, said, Greet Priscilla and Aquila, my fellow workers in Christ Jesus, greet also the church in their house. So that is a church, a, a church that meets in a house, a small group is a church. Then you have the church in an entire city. In 1 Corinthians 1, 2, and 3, Paul said to the church of God that is in Corinth. Now that wasn't just one massive body, that was many small churches, but they were represented as the church in Corinth. To those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints together with all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, I'm getting ahead of myself, but there's the universal church. The church is all of those who are sanctified in Christ, who are together in every place, calling on his name as Lord. Then you have the church in an entire region. Acts 9.31 says, the church throughout Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up, and walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it multiplied. And then what I've just said a moment ago, the universal church or the church throughout the world, 1 Corinthians 12, 13, Paul reminded the Corinthians, we are all in one spirit, we are all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free. 
So when we say the word church, when we talk about the church, we're talking about all the believers from the body of Christ represented all over the world. That's what we would call the universal church, church with a big C. Church is everyone who is in Christ, but it's also comprised of, of all these other bodies. Could be a large body in a big meeting hall, could be a, a small body that gathers in a home, a local church. The local church, all the local churches make up the universal church. And here's the other thing you need to understand about the church. Not only does it span geography, but it also spans time. When we say the church, the body of Christ, it includes all true believers for all time. Every, every man and woman, boy and girl, who ever has or ever will place their faith in Christ Jesus as Lord are a part of the church from, from time past all the way to the future. Even those in the Old Testament, you may say, well, how, how were Old Testament believers part of the church? Uh, Jesus had not come. Well, they looked forward to his coming. They placed faith in the fact that God told them a Messiah would come. So those who trusted God, who looked to God for salvation before the coming of Christ, were part of the church. Now, You've probably heard the word for church. I said today we're in ecclesiology, the, the study of the church. You've probably heard the word for church. It's used most often in the New Testament. It's the word ecclesia. Used over 100 times in the New Testament. It means very simply those who are called out or separated. What does that mean for believers? It means that as the church, as the body of Christ, we are called out from the world and separated under Christ. We should look different. We should act different. We should live different. There should be some distinguishing uh, marks about us. Now, now, let me clear. When I say we're separated from the world, we're called out. We're separated from the world, but we're not isolated from the world. It's not our purpose as a church to isolate ourselves from the world, no matter how evil the world gets. That would totally defeat the purpose, one of the purposes that Christ has for us. The Great Commission says we're to go into all the world and make disciples. You can't do that if you're sequestered in your little safe place as a church. I remember years ago when we were in uh, Peru, one particular little village we were working in, and these villages were probably not more than three or 400 people, but one village we were working in we discovered already had a church. We thought, well, why, why is there no impact? Why are people not being reached for Christ? And then we found out this particular church in this village was up on a hill above the village, and they would have nothing to do with the people in the village because they were sinners. That's not church. That's not accomplishing the purpose for which God has made us. So we're, we're separated from the world. We're, we're called out from the world. We're separated under Christ, but we still have a work to do in the world. I always like to say it this way. A ship is safe in the water as long as the water is not in the ship. We're the ship. The water is the world. We are supposed to be in the world, not in dry dock. We just have to be careful not to let the water get in the ship. That's the word ecclesia, those who are called out or separated. Now, there's a lesser-known word that also refers to the church. This word actually came from, from secular Greek, it was kuriakos, and it means belonging to a Lord. Uh, in the secular Greek, it would be if you talked about the Lord of a particular land or the Lord of a, of a manor. It referred to the fact that there was, there was ownership. It was a statement of ownership. Well, in Scripture, in the Greek New Testament, that word began to be used to refer to things that belong to the Lord. For example, in 1 Corinthians 11.20, the Lord's Supper, the word Lord there is that word. Revelation 1.10, the day of the Lord, it's that word. Well, German theologians translated that Greek word 
And from their translation of the Greek word, we get our word church. So literally, church means those who belong to the Lord. You belong to the Lord. That's why you're separated unto him. That's why you're uh, called out from the world, because you belong to him. Now, in many um, instances, in many references in Scripture, the use of the word church will refer to just the local congregation, not always the universal church. And so I want us to look this morning, if we turn to Acts chapter 2, I want us to look this morning that believers in, in a locality, and that's not saying these things don't apply to the universal church, but you'll see they can only be accomplished in a smaller setting, believers in a locality would gather to fulfill the purposes outlined in Acts 2. Uh, we've said the marks of the church were correct preaching, uh, administration of the ordinances, church discipline. Now we're going to look at the practices of the church. What you see in Acts 2, verses 42 through 47, is believers fulfilling the purposes for which the church was made. Acts chapter 2, beginning in verse 42. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul. And many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. Now, that's not the only, but if that were the only explanation of the purpose of church and scripture, it would be enough. What we see here is the things that the church did. And this passage in Acts clarifies that the church is not an institution. It's not just an institution. It's not just a group that has a, a doctrinal statement or a statement of faith. The church is about a way of living. The church is about a people who are recognizable and, and distinguishable. You know, our mission statement here at Geyer Springs says that we exist. Do you all know the statement? Anybody know the statement? We exist to glorify God by making disciples who love God and love others. Let's try that together. We exist to glorify God by making disciples who love God and love others. Take that down. Y'all all cheating. Let's try that again. We exist to glorify God by making disciples who love God and love others. And Acts 2, 42 through 47 is a great model for making disciples because what you see here is the disciples are doing life together. How do you disciple someone? How do you teach them to love God and love others? You have to do life with them. And here in Acts, here's the church in its infancy, and here's the practices they embrace, and God in his sovereignty recorded these fundamental practices for us. Why? Because the church today needs to continue the same fundamental practices. These same practices are still necessary for us today. So pay close attention. The practices of the church. Number one, you see this in verse 42. They were devoted to the word. Devoted to the apostles' teaching. What was the apostles' teaching? The scripture. It was what we saw the first week when we talked about bibliology, 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17. All scripture is inspired by God. It's profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, training in righteousness, for everything in life. Why? That the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. That was the apostles' teaching. The apostles didn't teach anything contrary to the Scripture and the teaching of Christ. They didn't have the New Testament like we do today, but they had the teaching of Christ. They had the Old Testament. They never taught anything contrary to Scripture. 
And that's a red flag. If you ever hear a, a preacher say anything contrary to Scripture, you better tune him out. It says they were devoted to the apostles' teaching. What does devoted look like? Sometimes we say, well, he sure is devoted to his job, or she sure is devoted to her kids. Well, what does that mean? Well, you look at the time that someone spends and the actions, their time and their actions reveal their priority, whether or not something is important to them, what, what they live for. The word devoted, if you were to look it up in the dictionary, means zealous or ardent in attachment, loyalty, or affection. They were devoted to the word. You see that in the 119th Psalm. The whole 119th Psalm is about the Word of God and David's love for the Word of God. And he says phrases like, I delight in your decrees. I've hidden your Word in my heart. I will obey your Word. My soul is consumed with longing for your law. That's devotion. And when it says they were devoted to the apostles' teaching, it means they built their lives around the Word of God. They listened to it as it was taught. They really tuned in. They didn't zone out. They didn't fall asleep. They listened. They looked into it themselves as much as they could. They learned from it. They, they lived by it. They understood they were under the complete authority of the Word of God in every part of life and every day of life. There was not any deviation from Sunday to Monday or Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday. Life was the same every day because they were under the complete authority of the Word daily. The whole point in the time they spent in studying worship was to learn about and draw closer to God and to be better disciples. I don't think anyone in this room would deny that the church today does not have uh, the same influence in society we once had. It has greatly diminished. And the reason for that is we're not people of the book. Either we don't know what the book says or we don't live what we say we believe. So there's no distinction about us. We're not separated from the world. Notice that it says not only are they continually gathering to hear the word and to worship, not only were they gathering to learn and, and be challenged to live the word out daily, but they also were gathering to share the message with others. Look down in verse 46. It says they were daily meeting in the temple to pray, to praise, and to proclaim. They weren't just a, a Sunday church. They're not going to see each other once a week and then head off to do life alone. They would come together to reignite, and they would go out to take the fire with them. But listen, they didn't just meet in the temple because they didn't have a building, because they were a new church with no building yet. That's not why they met in the temple. In the temple, they would encounter unbelieving Jews. Why? Because unbelieving Jews were going to the temple to make sacrifices and to worship. And there was a place on the side of the temple, the east side of the temple, called Solomon's Colonnade. You can read about it in Acts chapter 5 and verse 12, where it says the believers, not the, not the Jewish unbelievers, but the believing Jews were gathered there on that east side of the temple. It was one of the few places in Jerusalem that was big enough for a large crowd to gather. And so the believers would go there because not only were they there, but those unbelieving Jews who were coming to make sacrifice or coming to worship would gather at Solomon's Colonnade to socialize and have discussions before and after sacrifices and prayers. So the believers, being there, knew that was a good place to share the gospel. Verse 47 says they had favor with the people. Every day the Lord added to their number. Why was that? Well, because they were living life. They were living godly lives. They were living under the direction of the Holy Spirit. They were following and obeying the Word of God. And as they would go about their daily business, they were always witnessing about Christ. And it showed in how they lived. 
The reason they had favor with the people, the reason people in that, in that colonnade, unbelieving Jews, would stop and have discussions and pay attention to them is because the way they lived was so radically different, and it showed. So the first practice of the church was their devotion to the word, and not only for themselves, but their devotion to getting the word to others. Second practice of the church, in verse 42, we see they're devoted to, to community, to connection, to compassion. What you see in verse 42 is the word fellowship. And I need to tell you again, like I've told you before, that doesn't have the word food in it. Okay, fellowship talked about sharing. It talked about being in, in close relationship with, it, with, with each other. It says they, were, they, they had the breaking of bread from house to house. That was probably communion, but it was also just meals that they shared together. Why? Because in every culture and in every faith, sharing a meal is a sign of unity and, and a sign of love. That's why when we have a fellowship, we have a meal. There's something about sharing a meal together that, that brings the people together. What, what did Jesus often do in Scripture? You see him sharing meals, not just with saints, but more often he would share meals with sinners. There's, there's power in sharing a meal together. As we get close to Christmas time, I was reminded this week of the, uh, the uh, Christmas truce in 1914. Five days into World War I, the soldiers on the front lines, the French and the Germans and the British, uh, on Christmas Day, they, they ceased fire. They just decided among themselves to stop firing. And, and they came out of their trenches and met on the front, and they shared Christmas greetings, and they exchanged uh, souvenirs, and they shared a meal together. The following year, 1915, that practice was not as widespread because the commanders had prohibited troops from doing that. Why? Because it's hard to shoot at someone and be hostile towards someone you've shared a meal with. Sharing a meal brings people together. You see the church coming together. Why? Because we're made for community. God made us that way. We're made for community. We're called to belong, and we hunger for connection, right? If you've never noticed that before, surely in the last 20, 21 months, you've noticed the need for connection. During this pandemic, one of the worst things that happened was people were being isolated from one another. We long for connection. Unfortunately, it's kind of a paradox. We long for connection, but in our culture, we've learned uh, to develop an inclination against community. We cocoon ourselves behind doors, and we get in front of our, whatever our form of entertainment is, and we spend very little face-to-face -face time. We, we, we type, we, we text, we tweet, but we don't talk. We visit our neighbors less. We belong to fewer groups. Many people live completely alone. No, the church, the people of God need fellowship. And let me just be honest with you. Fellowship is not just walking alongside someone or enjoying a meal. True fellowship means we're all up in each other's business. If you need assistance, hopefully someone in your church, if you're part of a true church and true fellowship, knows that. If you need encouragement, they know that. If you need accountability, they know that. If you need to be called into right relation with God, if you need to be disciplined, they know that. That's what fellowship is all about. Verse 46 says, day by day they met in their homes. Now, they're already meeting corporately. We see them coming together in the temple complex. Why are they meeting in their homes? Because true fellowship doesn't happen in a crowd. If you have fellowship with anybody in this room, it's because you've spent time with them outside of this room. 
If you in the venue have fellowship with anybody in that room, it's because you have a relationship outside of that worship gathering. They knew that they had to do more than just meet together corporately. It's, it's in small groups that you're encouraged to live out and to apply your faith. It doesn't happen in, in this setting necessarily. And, and so the church, that big meeting in the temple complex, was actually just a collection of a lot of small groups. It was all these small groups, all these house groups around the city that would come together. And that's the same way it is today. Should be. You know, often when, uh, when people are looking at our church, they're considering our church, they'll say, well, it's just, it's so big. I just don't know. I feel like I'd be lost there. And our common response uh, to them is, is simply this. No, we're, we're really not a big church. We're a lot of small churches that happen to come together to have a worship experience. What I mean by that, we have a lot of small groups within our church. Uh, we would call them Sunday school classes or Bible studies. And if you attend worship, but you're not part of one of those small groups, you're not getting the fellowship element of being a part of the church. But what were they doing? What was the fellowship about? Well, they were practicing hospitality toward each other. You know, hospitality comes from the Latin word healing. You know what brings people healing? Connection with people. Small group deep relationship. Here's the deal. Before the church had buildings, before the church had a baptistry, before the church had a pulpit, you know what they had? They had kitchens and they had dining room tables. Church is not a place you go. Church is a family you belong to, and you're not likely to feel the family connection in this setting as much as you are in that smaller group. I can't tell you how many times, I've said it multiple times this week to people who are in crisis, whether it's a, a death or, a, or an illness. Uh, I don't know how many times I say to people, hey, we're here for you, we're your family. That's what church is, it's, it's family you belong to. And here's the reality in a church this size. If you have a, you have a catastrophe, a, a tragedy in your life, something going on, you can call me, I'm your pastor. But if you're in a small group, nine times out of ten, when I get to the hospital or I get to the home or whatever, that family's already been ministered to because they're a small group. Those people that they have fellowship with have been there, have been a part, or taking care of them and, and looking out for their needs. That's what it means to have fellowship and to share hospitality. Look at verses 44 and 45. They had compassion. Culture says, every man for himself, look out for number one, but that's not, that's, it's polar opposite in the church. They're looking out for each other and they're meeting needs. And, and let me put you at ease when you see the phrase, they had everything in common. That's not communism. They didn't take everybody's stuff and then redistribute it. It means that they held on to what they had lightly. Many of them had more than they needed, and there were people in the church that didn't have what they needed, and so they would sell. Verse 45, they would sell the excess to provide for the needy. You see the story of that in, in chapter 4 where Barnabas, uh, one who was in the church, went and sold a piece of land he had. He didn't sell the house he was living in. Then he would have had a need. No, he went and sold a piece of land that he owned that he didn't need. It was just an extra blessing that he had, and he used that blessing to be a blessing to someone else. What are they doing? They're following Jesus' example. Son of man did not come to be served, but to serve. They're serving each other. They're demonstrating compassion. Here's the definition of compassion. A feeling of deep sorrow for another stricken by misfortune. Actually, that's not compassion. That's sympathy. Feeling deep sorrow for another stricken by misfortune. To share their feelings is to be sympathetic. Here's compassion. Feeling of deep sorrow for another stricken by misfortune, listen, accompanied 
by a strong desire to alleviate suffering. That's compassion. Not just looking at someone and feeling sorry for them in their situation and, and wishing their situation was better. It's stepping into the situation and trying to alleviate the suffering that they're going through. That's a biblical picture of the church. The church is not about me coming to the church for what I can get. The church is about me coming to the church for what I can give. Not, not just for people in need. When you come to worship every Sunday, your attitude ought to be, what can I give? What can I contribute to worship? Not what am I going to get out of worship? Not John and, and choir and, and Tyler and, and, and band, uh, fix me, impress me, uh, lead me. No, it's what can I give? What can I be a part of in giving to the church? Community-minded people seek the good of others. The church was community-minded. They sought the good uh, of others. They didn't focus on themselves. And the early church was devoted to God and to each other. There's that part of our mission statement that we want to love God and love others. Because of the way they live, verse 47 says, they had favor with all the people the Lord added to their number daily. Why? People took notice of their faith in action. In fact, back up, look back in verse 43. Look at the first two words of verse 43. And awe came upon every soul. Now, you might think that was related to the wonders and signs being done by the apostles, but no, that happened prior to. What did the awe come from, from verse 42? They were devoted to the word, they were devoted to fellowship, they were compassionate, they prayed. Just the way that they lived brought awe to other people. The fact that they could look at those who were in the church and see the deep love and fellowship they had for one another. Remember what Jesus told the disciples in John 13, by this all men will know you're my disciples if you, you, you can respond, love one another. If you love one another. Third practice of the church is persistent prayer. And, I, and I'll be real honest here, that's probably the weakest mark for our church, local and universal today. And I know it is for me, and that's, that's on me. But it says here, they met daily in the temple and in the homes for prayer. They were much more dependent. They were totally dependent on the Lord. We don't think, we are too, but we don't think about our dependence on the Lord. You see, at this time in, in Jerusalem and among the Christians, Nero, the Roman emperor, was persecuting. He was severely attacking the church and attacking Christians. So they, they really understood their incredible dependence on the Lord much more than we do. Prayer keeps our minds and hearts focused on God and in tune with him, and we need that in the world that we live in. So many distractions out there. So many things to pull our focus away from the things of God. Prayer strengthens us for the task. We don't suffer the kind of persecution they did, but at times the, the task is difficult. At times we get frustrated. At times we get tired and we want to give up. Prayer strengthens us for the task. It, it, it helps us develop a mind, the mindset of God and, and the things of God. When we see what we're going through, when we look at, at different circumstances in life, we want to have the mindset of God. And prayer is best practice in that small group and fellowship. We, we pray in here. I think we've already prayed three or four times this morning. But there's something about people coming together and sharing their hearts and praying together for each other. So here, here we see in Scripture the practices of a healthy church. They're devoted to the Word. They're, they're devoted to, to worship, to community, and, and to prayer. 
And the application here in Acts 2 is really pretty simple. It's just uh, two phrases we see. Verse 42, steadfastly devoted. You know what it means to be steadfast? It means to be obstinately persistent. We need some obstinate believers around here. Steadfastly devoted, firmly, stubbornly adhering to your purpose, not yielding for any reason. You're inflexible in your persistence. We need that in the church. I want Geyer Springs to be known as an obstinate church. Isn't that a great word? Hey, I go to Geyer Springs. We're obstinate. And we need to be obstinate. We need to be obstinate in, in our commitment to the word, individually and corporately. We need to be obstinate about that. Not back up, not back down. If that's what the word says, that's how we're going to live. We need to be obstinate about community and connection. We need to say, you know what? We're not going to let someone just hang out around here. We're not going to let someone come to worship and, and go right back out the door. We're going to get them connected. We have compassion for this body. We have, we have compassion for the world. We need to be obstinate about calling on the Lord fervently and persistently. We need to be an obstinate church, a church that is steadfastly devoted. One other word of application, this passage is down in verse 46. It's just one word, together. In the word, fellowship, in prayer, it's all about being together. God did not plan for us to live this life alone. Certainly not spiritually, certainly not as believers, but we're together. That's what church is about. It's a word together. It's not a place you go. It's a family you belong to, and family is good, and family does a lot of good and fun things together, and sometimes family is hard. Sometimes family has to confront each other. Sometimes family has to call each other back to, to right behavior, but it, it's family. It's what we need. It's what the church is about. It's a family we belong to.